0: At Delta, we know Mike and 8C prefers reality TV to reality, so we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie, so we offer all types of food options, because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save
1: by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
0: Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean.
2: is 2019 and don't worry about that bear the movie Midsommar
1: everyone, and welcome to Unspooled.
2: Unspooled.
1: I'm Amy Nicholson.
2: And I am Paul Shear and this is the show where we are trying to find the 100 best movies. And when we do, we are going to send them into outer space. Last week, Amy, you and I spent a long time debating, horse trading, adding and subtracting films from our list of 100 films. And I got to say, it is now in our listeners' hands. They have a few things in front of them, and we're going to give them a beat to uh, register their votes, to make their voices heard. And next week, I think we should have a, a kind of another look at the list, a list that has now been peer reviewed and uh, and see where we're lacking, what we want to be focused on in the future as we kind of uh, move forward with the show.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To actually take a real exhale. It's been a while since I think I've combed through, what would we call it? The great end of season one, Cole. Where <laughs> we yeah. just, just absolutely savage and destroyed the AFI list.
2: Well, I was very surprised last week to find out we didn't have any animated films on that list. And I think there are a few fun gaping holes in there that fun we fun gaping kind of,
1: holes. Is that the name of your movie?
2: Well, that's uh that's actually a, a reference to Midsomar, uh <laughs> and the bear. But uh we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh but you know, yeah, I'm excited to kind of break it down, but I really want to take in everybody's Uh, response to it. So we're going to give it a a little bit of an extra beat. But in the meantime, we got a new season, baby. That's right. We are revisiting a topic that we have already talked about twice on this show, horror. People were so angry the first time we did horror. That's it. That's all you're doing. And we've, we've kept our promise. We've come back time and time again. There's plenty of horror out there, plenty to talk about. And I am so excited to be starting off this new series with Midsommar. Uh, I got to tell you, I didn't see this movie. I told you that early on. I was nervous about it. And I got to say, before we get into talking about it, not that bad. Not <laughs> that, uh, not no, wait, as fucked not, up as I thought I would be.
1: Okay, so not that bad as in good. Not, not that bad as in not that no, bad. No, it has nothing to do okay. with quality. Yeah,
2: Just yeah. in that my fear of watching this movie was uh, unfounded, I would say. You know, wow. it's, it, yeah, like like Devin writes, it's it, it's not as scary as Hereditary. And I think Hereditary, like I said, really messed me up. So if you are a person who listens to this show and you're like, well, I don't know if, if this is going to be for me. Those movies seem really scary. The poster seems really scary. I'm here to tell you it is disturbing and bizarre and artful, but not like a, not frightening. I don't think it's like a, a shock you. Kind of movie. It didn't mess me up again. I was I was really bracing to be messed up, and I was actually was a beautiful movie.
1: Well, then I think my challenge for uh, this kickoff of season three, for this return of the season of horror, which I think that, that's all sort of lovely. I think there's something very uh, Swedish in what we're doing, returning to the same. Amber fields of skeletons and creepy things that go bump in the night every year. It's what we do, Paul. It's it's our yes. community. This is our tradition. It's our solstice. Uh, that I want I want my goal is to have a
2: movie in this series, and though that does fuck you up. So
1: thank you okay. for this challenge.
2: Well, there you go. I mean, look, I can take a lot. I can take a lot. I don't know why that one hit me the way it did. It just really got me. Very rarely do movies get me like that, but sometimes, sometimes it gets under my skin. Like uh Raw. You've already seen me. Get affected by movies that mess me up. Raw got me messed up. But I never get tired of it. I never
1: get tired of it. You know, I mean, your fear is to me this source of joy and delight. It it makes me smile, you know, pretty much just like watching this clip from the most famous folk horror movie before Midsummer.
2: Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Classic episode of How Did This Get Made. By the way, we should re-release our Wickerman episode. Uh, you know, come on. Can't beat Not the Bees, not the Bees. And how I really held off on asking Nicolas Cage about that when we did our movie together. Uh, I really wanted to. I got a lot of other great stories, but not about Wickerman. Um, this has a lot of similarities to Wickerman, but I guess we should get into it, right? Should we just, should we uh should we just dive into our our own fall solstice celebration of horror, and just unspool it. The year is 2019. Donald Trump becomes the third president to be impeached. Prime Minister Theresa May formally resigns amid the failure of the Brexit negotiations. Dozens of people nationwide are convicted of bribery charges to get their kids into college. I'll remember that. And the Amazon Rainforest, the Notre Dame Cathedral, and all of Australia are subjected to devastating fires. Scientists capture the first photographic evidence of a black hole, and the hot films of the year include Avengers Endgame, Parasite, The Farewell, and today's film, Midsommar. Amy, who's in it? Who directed it? What's it about? And what was on the radio?
1: Midsommar! It is written and directed by Ari Aster. It is his second film after Hereditary, and it stars Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner as American couple Danny and Christian. Uh, *Midsummer* starts in winter when this couple, uh, Danny and Christian, are close to breaking up, much to his friend's delight. They think she's really dragging down his vibe, except her sister dies by suicide and takes her parents with her. And so Danny is now so alone in the world that Christian cannot bring himself to leave her. But he also cannot bring himself to love and support her either, and he can't even full-heartedly invite her to join him and his buddies on their trip to northern Sweden to visit their buddy Pele's hometown community of the Horga over their nine-day midsummer holiday. The Horga are everything that these Americans aren't. You know, they're bonded, they're emotionally connected, they're tight-knit, they're very, very ceremonial in ways that will, you know, kind of heal Danny's suppressed pain, but end disastrously for Christian and his buddies, who were played by Will Poulter and William Jackson Harper. Take a listen.
0: Christian says that you've got some special thing planned. Yeah, it's like a crazy nine-day festival. It only happens every 90 years. Hi. Hello, therefore. You can't speak. You can't move. But this opens you up to the influence. And it breaks down your defenses.
1: Midsummer was released on July third, two thousand nineteen, which is technically like a week and a half after Midsummer. If you want to get very specific about it, but it is fine. It felt like it immediately bedecked the world in ominous flowers. Uh, fashion-wise, I feel like we're still kind of living in Midsummer's influence. And music-wise, that whole summer was under the influence of just one song—a hit that was number one in pre-summer, Midsummer, and late summer. Paul, do you remember what this song is? We have played it on the show before. No. Ah. Oh. Here it comes. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse through the old town road. I'm gonna ride till
0: I can't no more. I'm gonna take my horse through the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't
2: no more. Wow, the, the, the birth of little Nas X. I mean, that really, when you think about where that started, it should have just been a flash in the pan, right? That should have been one and done, Oh, my gosh. Remember that guy. And literally last week he is getting statues at Madame Tussauds. What he has done in the music business in these last couple of years has been utterly uh, amazing. I think I'm blown. (laughs) I love him.
1: It's true. And I always laugh when I hear that song because I feel like it cuts off very unexpectedly for me. But there's a longer version if you watch like the longer YouTube version that has like a whole like intro skit. He's riding a horse. And he says a line in the like extended music video for this that I think is quite appropriate for our episode of Midsummer. I
2: don't know, man. And last time I was here, they want to welcome an outsiders. I, no. The answer would be no. Um <laughs> You know, okay, so Amy, I've already told you this movie did not freak me out. But I am bummed that I didn't get to see this movie in a theater because I imagine seeing it with a group of people would have made everything just that much more uncomfortable or unnerving. I mean, this movie is really a ride. And I feel like I wanted to look to my left and my right throughout different parts to be like, whoa, wait, what what just happened there? What was that? You know, I feel like there is something about this movie that begs for a communal experience.
1: Oh, a community. That's right. Mm -hmm. Horror is a community of people who gather ritualistically to watch other people suffer and die. I have to ask you this, though. You missed the movie, but you have not missed the influence. You thought this movie was going to terrify you. So what did you make of seeing people wearing flower dresses. Did you think, like, horrible things came out of the flowers? Like, the, what did you picture? Because I think the poster of this actually isn't that scary. Girl with a bunch of flowers, very emotional face. I'm curious what your imagination was that this movie was actually about.
2: I felt like it was a movie about a cult where people would be forced to do bad things to each other. So, like, an element of hostile within, like, a beautiful world. And I'd heard tell of, like, well, what's so great about it is it's so bright and vibrant. And I was like, I don't need to see well-lit dismemberment. Like, I I was considering all of this to be the beginning of the end. Like, yes, she's wearing a crown. I don't think the poster looks like she's having a good time. The poster looks like she's in this. And maybe now I'm bringing my own interpretation to it. But the poster looks like she's deep in grief uh, or that's how I always... Vi- like, that poster didn't seem happy to me. Um, not
1: happy, but not terrified.
2: No, I mean, it, it's interesting what bothers me in horror films. Like, what gets to my core. Like, I don't just like slicing and dicing kind of things. I I like a little bit more of a mental, you know, fear. I, I like playing into something that's a little bit smarter. And hereditary, like I mentioned was just a movie that I think because it was so grounded, it was so upsetting because you never, like there are some acts of extreme violence and mania in that movie that didn't feel like they were coming out of a horror film. They felt like they were coming out of a drama, you know? And I think that seeing that juxtaposition kind of fucked me up. Like I wasn't used to the graphic nature of horror in a drama. And I think it just set me a little bit off balance. I don't know. I don't know. But I had a hard time going to sleep after seeing that movie. And like, I can't think of another time I've had that. Um, So I was just hesitant. I was like, you know what? Life is short. I don't need to bombard myself with images that I can't get out of my own head. But I will say, shame on me. Because this movie is stunning and it's beautiful. And I do think that using the term horror to describe it is a little easy. Like it's not necessarily a horror film. Like I think this movie is an amazing meditation, meditation, uh, but you know, on grief and, and how, We deal with grief and and toxic relationships. But I really connected to this idea of grief here. And, And I think that that was something I've never really seen articulated to such a degree. And I think putting it in this horror movie context made it really fascinating. We talk about community in the beginning, like I wanted to watch it within a community. I think this movie is also about that. Like who is your community? There's so many things going on. I don't want to jump the gun, but I just want to say I've always liked Florence Pugh. I don't know why I've liked Florence Pugh. I saw her in Little Women, you know, saw her in Black Widow. I'm like, she's great. She seems cool as shit. She's cooking on Instagram. She just seems like she doesn't take any shit. And now I'm like, "Oh, oh, I get it. Like she is phenomenal. Like this is a phenomenal Performance, and then I was equally blown away because I don't think I even realized uh, that she was not American. And I've watched YouTube videos with. Her. I didn't even. I don't think I put the whole thing together. And everyone but William Jackson Harper is not American. That blew me away too. This movie, that watching the special features afterwards, really like was another level of whoa. That's like the first time when I watched The Wire and I saw Idris Elba speak. I was like, what the fuck? What is this? What happened? <laughs> It got me on a level that I was not expecting. Anyway, all that to say is uh, I'm team Pew.
1: (laughs) Wait, okay. So you are finally now entering full on the world of Pew because I do have some recommendations for you. Yeah, sure. us nerdy critics have been following Pew since she was in a movie called Lady Macbeth, um, which is, you know, quiet in a way. And sort of, it it has an element of like beautiful menace. That is a lot like Midsummer, but you know, dialed way down. It's a, it's a much smaller film. Uh, so if you want to see Pugh put her hair in little buns and terrify people, that is a great movie for it. Lady Macbeth, like that. I, that was the first time I ever really remember like seeing her, seeing her, and being like, who is that? And then a movie that I think I think you might like that's been kind of under the radar. I feel a bit unjustly. Uh, is she did a movie right after that? The second thing I ever saw her in was. A British comedy called Fighting With My Family.
2: Oh, is that the wrestling movie?
1: Yeah, it's the wrestling movie. It's the wrestling movie where she played a a real wrestler, right? I'm not that big on my wrestling, but she plays like a real wrestler who, you know, is kind of like gothy and wants to join like the WWE and she comes from England. It's like, you know, an underdog story about a girl who just really believes she can make it in the wrestling world. And she absolutely pulls that off. She pulls off kind of like the humor and the athleticism and the gruffness and the I'm from like a bad neighborhood and I don't care, all of that. Like it's the most un-pew of all of the pews I've seen in the body of work she has then like gone on to build. I don't think she gets to do quite enough comedy and she's so good at it. She's so funny even like in Black Widow.
2: Well, she definitely has that personality. I mean, she really is, like she carries herself in a fun way. Like, she seems like, oh, you want to hang out with her because she's cool as shit. Like, that that energy. And I will say, and I don't want this to be, I don't know how it will come across, but I'll just say it. I was shocked that she's 26. Like, again, I'm like, I, I was like, I understand her. I've seen her in Little Women. I've seen her in Black Widow. But I was shocked to be like, wow, she carries herself with such uh, an older, like, she just, feels older. Like, it doesn't feel like this is a performance of a 23-year-old or a 22-year-old. Like, these are kind of more mature performances. Is that something to say?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. I think it's fair. And I I will say, she's actually good at Don't Worry Darling, too. I mean, she's very good at Don't Worry Darling. And actually, I think that movie is pretty solid, to be honest. Um, I would put it kind of in the category that I was saying I put out. I would put in um, Get Out, where it's like, you're a very, very well done homage, competently executed homage to horror tropes I like with a little bit of modernity. And I don't think it pushes this idea quite as far as Get Out does, but it's actually kind of beautifully filmed. It's like a really beautifully, beautifully, beautifully filmed movie with just amazing cinematography and her just running around, having the camera on her pretty much the whole time and being marvelous. And I so, yeah, it's absolutely worthwhile. I- She's great. Movies, totally solid. Not a disaster in any sort of a way.
0: At Delta, we know Mike and 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, Keep climbing. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: Uh, I'll tell you, Amy, as soon as I was done watching this movie, I... Went back and rewatched the beginning of it because it felt so far away from where the movie ends. And I wanted to see how it started. And, you know, this movie really does set itself up like an old European fairy tale. Like I I saw some similarities between like the Green Knight and this, you know, where we we kind of come in into this world, but we are brought in first to these drawings, right? These drawings <laughs> of this other we don't know what it is yet and then we are immediately
1: there's that little bit of harp right where it's like you're in a yes. musical moment it's almost like you're sitting down to see an old art form the way that yeah. this, the art kind of separates itself like two wood blocks moving yeah and that little that just that little trill of music
2: Yeah, you're kind of like being introduced to this fairy tale story, and then you're immediately pushed in to cold, dark. You know this this world, this kind of unforgiving world, like where you know when you see it, it immediately feels heavy to you. It's like you're putting on heavy coats. No one's really out. There's snow covered houses. The trees are dead. It's you're lifeless. In this it's lifeless. dark and lifeless. And you know that's really how we meet this character that uh, Florence Pugh plays. She is in this moment where it feels like she is stagnant. You know, she is frozen in time, dealing with a family issue that we know a little bit about in a relationship that feels like it is, you know, struggling to survive. This is like the last gasp of air. And I think this is something that actually comes up obviously throughout the the entire film of of life right and i think we're we're entering into this movie in a moment of of death right trees are you know, everything is dying everything is is done and it will be reborn but that's such a fascinating way when you really look at the bookends i think that sometimes movies like this it's really important to look at that because you can get so far away from something that you forget you know how they brought you into the world. and Right, uh,
1: because if you look at that art, you know, especially now that you've seen the movie, when you go back, you see that it basically is the whole
2: movie. It's yes. just a
1: mural of everything that's going to happen. There's Beautiful snow, foreshadow. there's a maple, there's a bear. It's ritualistic. It's kind of like, it's like the movie sits down and says, let me just tell you the plot because this is a thing that happens here. This is a thing that happens every 90 years. This is just the story. The story is how is going to unfold the way that it always has in this right. community and we don't mind telling you because this it's not a surprise to most of the people in the movie what happens because it's what's supposed to happen. And I am curious like when we have all these like trees do you think the first set of trees we see like the really thick ones do you think we're in Sweden for that and then we switch to America is it like showing us the season there? And then the season in America, or is it all America, all those big trees?
2: I think this movie is so lush that, you know, it feels almost like the general sense of winter. Like, wherever there is winter, like, I don't know if Sweden gets winters like that. It feels to me very much oh, yeah, like, you know, Detroit, Michigan, like that kind of like, you know, a, a suburban town that gets a very, you know, heavy snow. I, I think there's... a. Uh, a connection to that with every place. And I think that you need to start off with those dying trees because when we are brought into this world, it's so different. Like, if we were brought into that same field in the winter that they the movie primarily takes place in, this, like, little town, this village during the celebration, that would be something. But I think it's more just general to be living in this... It's a great way to show death. And, you know, when, when, they, when they show her parents for the first time... Of course, they're dead, right? Of course they're dead. Like, but like, I didn't notice it the first time, but re-watching him, like it it's all there, but it's like, what? how do our brains want to interpret it? Like, they're too still. I didn't even think about them being dead. Of course, they're not dead. Like, but,
1: well, it's funny because I almost think the dad looks like he's still breathing. Like I think his chest is rising just a little bit, which to me makes it worse. Like she's worried and she knows something is wrong. And she's calling them, And it's almost like there might have been time for it to be different, but she didn't know. Like the idea of like calling and somebody is about to die, but they haven't died yet. That
2: sounds even worse. Yeah, that's a terrifying place to be. But that's also where I think all these characters are, right? We have, you know, when we meet Florence Pugh's character, she is really struggling right we we are told through some exposition that she's been dealing with this sister who is bipolar and and it's it's clearly frayed her like she seems broken you know the relationship that she's in seems broken it's these last moments of you know of this life and if maybe it is the father taking these last breaths because it everybody else is mirroring that like everything is on these Last moments, last moments of college before a thesis, like these. Everyone is in a moment of it's it's coming to an end. And what decision do we make after that?
1: Yeah, and this idea of not recognizing it or not wanting to recognize it because we get that phone call that she makes to to um, to Christian right at the beginning, where it's like this is one of the things I really like about like Ariaster and his cinematographer and their filmmaking is like the confidence that they use the camera with. They just keep the camera on her face for the most part in that first phone call, where we know that she's terrified. We see that she's crying, but her voice is just trying to act normal. And yes. he doesn't know what's happening exactly. You know, he knows that's not great, but he's like, I'm eating pizza with my bros. Oh, I didn't even know we had plans. It doesn't seem like they did have plans. He's he does ask how she's doing. He kind of checks in. He's not, like, totally heartless, but he doesn't quite understand what she's feeling at that moment, and she doesn't tell him. Like, she really specifically doesn't trust him to know exactly how bad she's feeling. And then she, you know, gets on the phone with her friend, and she's just like, I don't think I can lean on this guy. You know, she's really like, am I asking too much out of this relationship?
0: What if I'm scaring him off? What did your sister write? Mm just some ominous bullshit like she always does and it's torture and I lean on him constantly for support. Like, what if I have overwhelmed him and he thinks that I just have too much baggage? Well, if that's the case, then good riddance, right? No, not if I, I went too far, if I leaned too much. You didn't. He should be there when you need him. Yeah, but what if I need him too often and it becomes a chore? Then he's not the right guy, because it shouldn't ever be a chore. Would it be a chore if he leaned on you? Yeah, but he doesn't ask me for anything. I've never even seen him cry. So I'm the only one that's leaning.
1: I mean, that's a scary place to be in in a relationship where you feel like this is supposed to be my person. And I I feel like by being me, I will drive them away.
2: Well, I think there's something really interesting about this reveal, right? When you read some things online, people are very quick to say, well, it's a toxic relationship. He's a bad guy. And I think that two things can be true. He can be exhausted by this roller coaster, being on this roller coaster with her. And I think when I first meet him, I have a lot more sympathy for him because I see him as someone who is dating someone casually in college. It's not until probably about 45 minutes into the movie where it's revealed they've been dating for four years. And then I'm like, whoa, wait a second. Okay, now I can also see the other side of that where it's like, oh, for four years you have been maybe at the beck and call, like I, there's something about that character where I think we're very quick to be like, he's selfish, he's this, he's that. But also, you know, he's been riding this roller coaster with her. Cause it's not about, it's not about where she is Like she doesn't have the problem, but she is under so much anxiety from her family. It seems like that it is all consuming. Like she can't, she, you know, she doesn't have a place to go, but she also, you know, she is in desperate need. And, and you know, I think this is a it's a tricky moment in, in any relationship of, do you stand by that person? Not because you're, can you handle it? Do you want to handle it? Are you in this relationship because you want to be there or because you feel like you can't leave it? And I think that that's something that a lot of people get into. Like, oh, it's not the right time. I would maybe, or things might get better only if it gets over this hump. And I think this movie is a really, a more fair point of view about relationships, which is if you do that to someone, that is a a toxic relationship. Like she is literally, I mean, the movie is about, you know, the, the opening scene, her sister has poisoned their entire family by, you know, having car exhaust you know, fill their lungs, right? And and to the sister's point, like truly, like harshly in her mouth. Yeah, um,
1: that terrible, like kind of zoom into her like glassy eyes, that tube taped to tapes her mouth. And I was almost thinking like during that scene, of like the, the slow motion fireman walking all around this horrible house. It's got that sick violin song that just, that, that it reminded me of the Dark Knight in the score that kind of like everything is wrong. Everything is terrible. You know, that whiny violin sound, which- puts my nerves just so on edge.
2: What I think I'm drawn to is the idea that this breathing in of these toxic fumes, like, this breathing in of, like, these really, like, when you aren't really there, like, it's just, like, a slow buildup of toxicity that will kill this relationship. We we're meeting this relationship in crisis. And we're meeting this relationship in a moment where he's already done and and kind of on the way out. Like he's planned this trip with his friends and then, you know, her parents and her sister die so tragically. And I'm sorry to spend so much time in the beginning, but I think it's important like they die so tragically that he's forced to stay in because he would be a real monster if he didn't. But because he's not really there and he can't like fake it, it actually is worse for her. So it's this idea of like, I think there's something really interesting about, I think two themes going on one, the theme of death and rebirth. Also the theme of, you know, of acknowledging death. That's not so apparent. Maybe, maybe that's, maybe that, maybe it's both about death. Cause it's like, like a toxic relationship is just, once you acknowledge it, then you can move on from it, but she's there. Neither of them are acknowledging it. She knows she's not getting what she wants from him. So she's trying to be different. He is not getting what he wants from her, but yet he still will do it, but begrudgingly. So they both are unhappy. They both are giving up their youth. It's such an interesting moment like they should just pull out she would be better off without him because he's not giving her anything to even get over the grief it's just like a
1: placebo or something like yes placebo but she's actually sick yeah and and i mean i really what i love about the way this is scripted is i feel like i get every single person's point of view on this like i get his friend's point of view you know you're bros. You're several rings out from this girl and her family tragedy. You don't know her parents. You don't know her sister. She's like a character to you in a way. Like this girl that your buddy's always kind of complaining about at the bar. You know, she's not really their friend. They don't know her very well. So, of course, they're, they have this perspective of like, we love our buddy. She's dragging him down. That's understandable, to be honest. Like, if you, if you don't know her, if you're kind of young and callow and you can't picture this... And you're looking out for your friend paramount. I I think there is kind of an argument. Like, if you love your friend, you want your friend to be happier. And you can take this simplistic view that this girl is clearly making him unhappy.
2: And we don't know anything about her. We really don't know anything about her, her relationship, their relationship. Like, she is the most blank slate of any character because she is just grief an anxiety personified. We meet her in a moment of extreme anxiety and then we see her in a moment of extreme grief. Like and then, you know, we very, you know, then she's really just an empty shell of a person, you know, and 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 we see her start to come into her own. I think that's part of the the journey for her, but it is it's hard to figure out what she is like outside of this. We don't know. We're not given that much. No, it's true. The director's cut gives you a lot more detail about their relationship. I went back and rewatched all the added scenes and there's a lot more. I think this movie is incredibly subtle. In but it doesn't need to be expositional. Like everything that was added is great. Almost like the way that if you saw a movie based on a novel like, "Oh, okay, that lets me understand them a little bit more." And I and you get to see well, I guess to maybe your point, it may make the boyfriend a little bit more of a villain, like a little bit more, right? Because you know a little bit more about him um, and their well, relationship yeah, like We together. hear
1: her like really going after each other about the guilt they feel, you know, like the way that they he misinterprets what she does or he adds a layer of interpretation. Maybe he's right. We don't even know exactly. But like, well, here's a fight that they're having. Um this, this, this deleted scene takes place like after that first lunch where she's like picked flowers and given them to him. And now it's nighttime, which is that's another weird thing about the deleted scenes is like there was a whole sequence that took place at night. And I think it's very smart that they deleted that so that the whole movie can just take place in this like disorienting sunshine. But here's them
2: arguing. When you casually gift me an impromptu bouquet of flowers, that just makes what me flowers? think, how and when am I supposed to pay that back? Everything you give me is a reminder that I'm not doing enough for you in this relationship. What, at lunch?
0: I picked those on a whim.
2: Oh, don't try to tell me that you had no ulterior motive. Yeah, what On what your birthday, I have? the day after I didn't get you something.
0: Are you being serious?
2: Okay, fine. Play the wounded party, again.
1: Like, OK, I've been nervous to say this, but maybe I will just say this now. Uh, in a way, a weird version of this happened to me. Like, really? my kind of my dad died really suddenly, you know, right before my senior year of college. And my boyfriend at the time drove down to the funeral and held my hand and told everybody I was going to be fine and that he would take care of me. And then uh, when I got back to college, I found out that the night before he went to the funeral, he cheated on me with one of our friends and we broke up because he kind of snapped. Like, he just didn't think he could handle it. And I get it, honestly, because like when something really bad happens to you, and I mean, God, on the scale of something that this awful for Danny, like that awful, when you're young, the people around you don't understand And they don't know how to talk to you about it. And it just goes like untalked about. So you can't get any comfort from your friends because everybody's just absolutely paralyzed. Like I kind of think of like like grief like that as joining a a club in a way. Like once you've felt grief like that, then you understand. But if you haven't felt grief like that, you know, and and when you're like 20, 21, most people haven't had something that deep happen there's, you know, nobody understands even where the door to that club is, so they just act like it isn't there. Do you know what I mean?
2: I I actually do know what you mean. Um, You know, while I haven't, like, lost a parent, you know, my wife, before she was my wife, um, lost her mom. Mm -hmm. And we were dating maybe for about a year or so. I don't know exactly when now. I'm just, I'm off on dates. And, you know, our relationship was fine. Like, you know, we we had a good relationship. Um, but, you know, it was to me the first time I had ever experienced just by being next to it, that level of grief and and that level of trauma to someone who was in their 20s going through this loss of her mom. And, you know, I don't I don't want to put myself on that pedestal at all of saying like, Oh, I get it. But I get, I saw, I saw it firsthand and I can see how people could be afraid of that and want to run away from that and not really understand how much that grief and trauma exists. And, and I, you know, I've been with my wife through the loss of both of our parents and the other one came, you know, slightly after our second child was born. And, uh, you know, both really tremendously traumatic times, and you know, your job. You know, I think there's a there's a few jobs of of a person who is, you know, standing next to that person. It's like you you have to be there for them, and you have to be unselfish, and you have to be supportive, and you have to let this grieving process go on, and as much as you can, like allow it to be, not expect it to be over but also take care of yourself and your own mental state because you are in many ways, the, the one that can function a little bit more, you know, there's a lot at stake and there's a lot going on there. So I've, I've seen it from the other side of it and I can easily see why people would be scared of it. I've seen my friends be in those situations and pull out of relationships because of it. It's, it's, it's a wildly vulnerable place as you know, uh, you know, to show yourself to like that to somebody else to bring you into this dark part of yourself, and I think what I love about this movie is you know, I think it's it's couched in this idea of what a weird world we're going into. But when that camera flips on the car ride once they land in Sweden, the camera flips, and we kind of get this idea we're going into another world, that to me feels like the beginning of her coming out of her grieving. Like, you know, literally exiting into the world again, right? Like, because we see her, she can barely, you know, kind of function in this world. And now she's going to this world and everything around her is overly bright, is weird. She doesn't understand things. And I think that that, from what I understand, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, like when you are grieving, like that club that you talked about, that idea of like being separate from everyone else. I look at people, My June says all the time, I look at people in two ways, like people who have lost and people who have not. And, you know, and it's like, there's something that there's a community there. And I saw that community rally around June when she did go through that. But that's really what I'm seeing when she enters into this world is like the confusion, the weirdness is just like, how do I live in my world anymore? I'm in such a place of utter, nothing makes sense. And that's what I thought was such a beautiful, like metaphor for grief. Like the world feels like this.
1: Yeah, and that's why it feels to me that when death starts happening there, you know, when you have, like, the art and the uh, 72-year-olds jump off the cliff and all of the guys around her, all of her, all of, you know, the buddies are, like, shocked, freaking out, people are screaming, you know, the British people are losing their mind, you know, just absolutely yelling.
2: Fire! Fucked! <laughs> fuck this! <laughs> You're fucked! <laughs> fuck! You're the fucking standing there watching! You know what? what the fuck is oh, wrong with I'm you? You're shocked. bro! No! Please, please! Leave her
1: alone! Please listen to what? me! Let me explain! Explain what? When you look at her face, there's an expression on there that doesn't fit into any of the easy slots. You know? It's not like pure horror, It's 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 something that's more like. This is the terrible kind of image that's in my head, you know? Like, I have seen this kind of death. You people don't know. You people haven't been able to understand. Now these thoughts that are in my own head, she's thinking, now you get it. You know what I mean? It's almost like she's known things are awful. She can't really get it through to anybody else, how awful things feel inside of her. But now maybe they understand just a little bit. You know, like death is now becoming real to them, too. And there's, when you're in that kind of a grief state, there's almost just something nice about it being absolutely recognized. Like, not just, dear, dear, everything's going to be okay, but like, oh, hell, this is really bad. And it's like, it's almost like it affirms how bad she's been feeling to see something that bad also happen. Do you know? Yeah. There's something weirdly comforting, I feel like, in that scene for her. This is how I feel like the world goes. Nobody's really been listening to me. Okay. Okay. I now feel a bit seen.
2: Well, I think that there's another thing at play too. I, I agree. They are a community. This this foursome that is going to this, you know, this summer celebration. But they're all individuals. They're all alone. They're not a unit. But everybody that you see in this village are very rarely alone, they're all in tandem and they all are doing something that feels a part of a larger puzzle, right? And the only times when death happens in this movie is when people vacate the group. When one person goes away, that's when, that's when death happens, not the jumping off the rock, but like, because that was also a choice. But that's what kind of is happening. I think this movie is about, like, you may surround yourself with a community, but are they really taking care of you? And not to, like, jump to the end, but I will say that, that that's really what she's going through. Like, this odd world, like, takes her in. They, they envelop her. They grieve with her. They experience what you just said. Like, they, they see her grief right and that is what you're saying you know a lot of people who are younger don't and can't do and even though you're there with them and you're trying to be okay and everything is normal they're not seeing you they're not experiencing you they don't they don't recognize you and i think that that is such a deep deeply dark and hard thing to describe to feel completely alone in a room full of people, completely alone in a car, completely alone with this person. It's like, yes, he forgot her birthday. And I think a very simplistic version of this movie is, oh, he's they're in a bad relationship and she finally frees himself from him. Like, sure. But it's less about, I think it's less about relationships. Yeah, he's and I think not it's like more...
1: Cal in Titanic. Like, oh, right. I'm just a bad guy. Right.
2: It, to me, it's about family and community and I think one of the things we struggled through in the last three years was the lack of community. It made people go insane. It made people feel nuts because we didn't have like, how do we how do we get this community? How do we- and, and I think some people have lost friends. And I think people have leaned into different friends. Like, who are the people that are really there? Or who are the people that I just that are just like bodies? And that's okay. You can be surrounded by bodies, but you also need some real people too. Like, and I think, you know, when you are in college in this part of your life, This moment may push that to the front. Like, who are the people that are really my ride or die? It's not the people I just go to the bar with on Friday, right? Or the person who's like, oh, that's fun to hang out with. I like them. They're a good boyfriend. They're a good girlfriend. Like, that. that grief makes you have to say, like, no, I'm here because it's not easy. It's hard to be with someone with grief.
1: Yeah, it's so hard.
2: And it's I mean, not, that's that's yeah. why I
1: think I feel so much sympathy for Christian, too, because there's not a road map for that. Yes. And I kind of just want to give a tiny shout out to, like, um, my boyfriend, uh, Robert, who I started dating after that at, at, in college. This is my senior year boyfriend who I started dating after the guy uh, who um, broke up with me um, because he just couldn't handle it. Like, that guy... Greatest guy on earth, I will like adore him for the rest of my life. Cause he really got it. He got that I was like upset and unhinged and couldn't really talk about it. Right. And like the the bond I feel for that guy for being able to, you know, ride or die with me that the rest of my senior year, he's like the hero of my lifetime. Uh honestly. But um, but what the horga do, you know, they're what I think this movie is about in addition to all of those things is it's about empathy and mm. their way of dealing with like pain or grief is to echo it back. Like we actually even see that, you know, a little bit earlier before like the Brits start freaking out in that scene um, where, you know, the elderly man uh jumps off the uh cliff. That's Bjorn Anderson. I do want to take a second to talk about him in a minute, but first, like, you know, he jumps off the cliff he jumps badly, he lands on his ankles, he doesn't immediately die, he's in pain. And what the community does, you know, as they make plans to end the pain uh, by hitting him in the head with a mallet, uh, is they reflect his pain back at him. You know, he is wailing, and so they start wailing in pain too. No! And by the way, I want to give a shout out to the, science, the sound design here because, like, you know, they. So much of the sound design in this movie is about, about like muffling the audio and then like bringing the audio full in and around you, like hearing the audio only on one half or the other half. And it kind of captures this idea of like, are you in your own head and everything is muffled and you're not present? Are you out of your own head and with the community and everything is louder? You get the sense just through the sound cues of like where you're at and being present with the Horga and 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 where you're at being present with other people it's just such a great sound design choice that they do with all of the kind of like muting of things. But hearing those, hearing the people scream pain back at him in a way, when somebody's going through a strong emotion, that's one of the better things you can do to be like, this is awful. And I'm just going to be there with you screaming as though it's happening to me because I want you to know that I care. And it almost makes you feel like you're less Like you're less crazy. Like you're that your feelings are. That's what it is. It's like they're saying your feeling is valid and it's so valid that we're going to feel it with you, which is just the opposite of everything that we see like her friends back home doing, which is they're not sincere about anything. Even the way like Jack says, like, "Oh, she's totally not coming to Sweden. She's totally not coming to Sweden." He's not being sincere. They're not being sincere. Everybody's being like awkward about it. You know, nobody will say what they're really thinking. And the Horga are like, "I see what you're feeling. I hear what you're feeling, and I'm going to repeat it back to you to show you that I understand."
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: Pele, you know, who brings them there? Like, clearly he's bringing these people there to to further his society right like this is what his job is like he asks do you feel held by him and i think that idea like i think is is an interesting one right because i think you can look at it again from just the myopic world of the relationship but it's 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 like do you feel like he's taking care of you like are you being taken care of when they do mushrooms when they first get there before they go into um you know the the village they are all together but separate right she goes off and she is separate like and that this idea that no one is helping anyone no one is there for anyone and everything that we see in this society is people being there even the dance around the maypole like i think what's really interesting is uh the dance around the maypole is probably the first time we see some joy in in I'll just call her by a character's name, Danny's Life, because she's like, she's embracing this thing, and she's she's in the moment, and she's experiencing this. And as people are falling away, there's not this competition aspect, like, oh my gosh, uh... You know, we're out. I'm so mad that we're out of the Maypole dance. It's it's like, oh, my gosh, we're down to the eight. Like, everything is happy. Everything is community-based. And people are watching the rest. Like, there is this it's not like energy. We
1: can, we can collaborate on our thesis. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. But, but, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, but they're after each other. It's like, well, he gets credit for it. He doesn't get credit for it. And then he's trying to, you know, uh, you know, William Jackson Harper's character goes and tries to take pictures after he's told not to. It's like everyone's trying to get ahead of the community. But in this community, everyone is working towards a greater goal. And that goal is sacrificing yourself. That goal is, you know, um, bringing people here. Like there's so many elements about the greater good, you know, going back to Star Trek too. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. And, um, you know, and that, I think, is an idea that's such a an interesting concept. Like, you know, we we are surrounded and we're in a world always by people who call our, each other friends. But are they there for you? Are they truly there for you? Or do they just want to hang with you? And it's like part of this like movie is about getting rid of these... Toxic relationships. Maybe that doesn't look like the the world that you're supposed to be in. Maybe that doesn't look like the thing that you see yourself doing. But if they're taking care of you, if they're actually bringing you happiness, if they actually are holding you up, because that maypole dance is about holding each other up. And yes, they fall, but you know it's like you know they literally carry her in a carriage when she wins the maypole you know dance, and they're carrying. It's the other women carrying her. Yes. Yeah. You know, the these other women are surrounding, even in the scene where where uh, her boyfriend is seduced and having sex with this other woman, you know, there are a group of women around supporting this inception, this, you know, you yeah. know conception, whatever it is. Pushing we're watching. on his
1: butt, comforting her, holding yes. her hand and singing. And, it, and I like how Arias are like, Builds that scene in a way where where the woman starts singing, it feels like it's coming out of nowhere. And he's allowing you to laugh because it is super strange. Yeah. But also that actress plays it with such emotionality that you that she seems legit. You know, in a way, like, when you watch this movie from the Swedes' point of view, they're, like, I mean, one of the notes he gave all those actors was he doesn't want them to telegraph that something bad is happening. He doesn't want them to, like, play it menacing or threatening at all. They're just going through their usual ritual. And they're, it's working all according to plan. You know, none of this is, like, surprising to them. They're just a community. And, like, he had actually a lot of the... uh a lot of these extras, you know, they they like did workshops together, they meditated together, they did all these like kind of group building exercises to learn how to watch each other and start like silently communicating as one. It, he wanted them to never be menacing, but just to always know that what they're doing to them is like right and it's fair. And I do find it fascinating that when I went through the credits list, they are all Swedish. Like they're all Swedish and they shot this film in Hungary, but the actors he brought are all Swedish. There's not even like a hidden Dane in there. There's not even like a hidden Norwegian. They're all legitimately Swedish, which I find fascinating. I don't think I've seen like a non, uh, like an American-ish movie. And I know this came from some Swedish funding, but like be that completely Swedish. It's, it's, you know, astounding. Um, And I will say what we're talking about actually is kind of giving me flashbacks to another moment in college when I studied abroad in Sweden for six months. Um, very strange place. And I wound I wound up coming home feeling much more American than I had felt like I was before I went to Sweden. Mm. You know, like when I went to Sweden, I was kind of like suburban teen who aspired to be like Euro trash, I guess, you know, like I love Bjork. I love blur. I love talking about how much I love them to everybody else and being like, I'm not really American at my core, but then I went to Sweden and I was like, Oh, I'm so American, you know, here because it felt so fundamentally different in a way that I wasn't like expecting. And, you know, you're like, Oh, it's an Ikea. It's an H and M. It feels familiar, but no, it was like, like a very different culture to the core In a way that really surprised me in a way that like you're almost not expecting because you're like you're expecting it to be different in a lot of other places. But I think we have this dumb idea like, oh, Sweden, it's fairly similar. Absolutely not. And it was like the differences that I felt in Sweden really hit home about like how I was raised, how they were raised. I remember my Swedish friends saying, you know. All of our best friends are from like elementary and middle school and high school. Like they even in our college dorm, they're like, we don't really make friends with the other Swedes our age because we already have our best friends from being young. Maybe the guys I met in my dorm were crazy, but that was sort of how they explained it. Like they would rather hang out with the people they've known their whole life than make new college friends. They liked each other, but it was like those are never going to be their best friends because they hadn't known them forever. And, And they were like, you Americans, we find you so confusing because you'll come here and be like... Hi, I'm your friend. I love everybody. And then you'll go home and you'll never talk to us again. And I was like, oh, right. kind of. Kind of, yeah. I still talk to Jesper, but I don't talk to almost anybody else. And like they nailed the American id on that. They're like, you you don't hang out with each other forever the way that we do.
2: Well, I do like that when this played in Sweden, it was viewed much more as a comedy. Like it <laughs> elicited so much more laughter from the audience because I think that they understood These like they were looking at it as these stupid Americans. Like, I mean, like I think one of the first things that they say when they see these kids playing, they're like, oh, what are they doing? Oh, they're playing Skin the Fool, you know, and, you know, like everything to the Americans is odd. But, you know, when you play it in Sweden, they're looking at it as, oh, my gosh, look at these idiots that are coming into. I mean, even though it's not. They're not saying that they're a pagan culture, of course. I'm just saying, but like they're looking at it from a different perspective. Like they're on the side, they're on the other side, seeing these Americans, you know, actively not fitting and being, I guess, against what you just described. This idea of you know of togetherness and community, and and I did get made
1: fun of a lot of for being an American. There, like people would come up to me at parties and ask like if everybody back home really did weigh like 900 pounds and own 12 guns, and they were. Not entirely joking, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like the Americans get have a well, I felt like I got very hazed, but. <laughs>
2: I love that you were hazed by Swedes. Um, Random Swedish fact.
1: Because I lived in a dorm and we had our own kitchen. We did a lot of cooking. And like one of the weird Swedish habits that I found fascinating is would they would make a lot of pasta, like macaroni noodles or spaghetti noodles, all different shapes of pasta. But instead of a, a marinara sauce, they would just put ketchup on it And I'd be like, what are you doing? And they would say, that's what you Americans do. We learned it from you. You guys are the people who love ketchup. And I would be like, this is not us. I don't know what you're talking about. But they were all convinced that they put ketchup on their pasta and it was our fault.
2: (laughs) Well, look, I used to go to Mexico City here in Los Feliz and they used to make uh, ceviche with ketchup. So uh, it was really a a very interesting taste. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, I think there's so much here to, like, unpack, and I think what's great about it is it still works as a straight-up horror movie. Americans come into this weird town, and they get skinned, they get killed, they get yelled at, and they see some fucked-up shit. And, you know, and I think that this idea of couching something so deep and that can have so many different meanings to people is really an amazing way to do horror. We talked about that with Nope. We talked about that, you know, um, in other movies that we, that we've done in the show, Ganja and Hess. And what are we trying to say about society, but at the same time present to you a movie that is still fulfilling every goal of what the genre does. And I think that that is, you know, I think we've gotten very much into this idea in horror where it's like, it's a genre, it sells, it goes overseas, make a fun horror movie and you'll see what happens. But the horror movies that seem to last are the horror movies that that are layered. They are like the best Star Trek episodes. They are saying something, but yet they can work for the audience that's just going to watch them on a Friday and never think about them again. You know, because I've read so many things after watching this movie where it's like, oh, you got to watch this movie on mushrooms. You got to be high to watch this movie. It's like, no, you don't like, it, like, it's a beautiful movie. It's, it's, it, the way it's structured and the way that the camera is so still, and it's these long, you know, and wide shots and you're watching characters play out, you know, not in close ups, Um, and you're seeing these images that are, you know, that are intriguing, whether it's this deformed, um, I don't know what that is. Is it a child? Is it a is it a man or is it a woman? I don't like no. We know, you know that we don't know. We
1: know that the person is a product of inbreeding. They say that.
2: Yeah. And you know, we see these, we see these things, so it does pay off on all that. So I do think it's it is also a movie that that really does know the genre and pays off the genre and pays off the genre in a way that is incredibly unnerving like yes in the director's cut you will see how uh what is his name mike uh gets completely killed and skinned uh you know for uh peeing on the the ancestral tree but here we don't see it and i actually think it's better for it i think it's better for it i like it's great we can see a close up of a face getting smashed or you know someone getting killed but i i like not Seeing it, it makes me have more questions and it makes them more um, scary as a unit because how did they do this? You know, how did they, you know, how... I I like that idea. I think it, just, it, it makes the movie more scary, in my opinion, not to see it.
1: Well, yeah. I read an interview once with Ari where he was saying that the deaths are happening mostly off screen because he knows that when you go to see this movie, you're expecting the deaths. And so he's like... You know that they're coming. It's That makes it almost the dullest part. Yeah. Like, why am I going to show you what you feel like you're expecting? Let me show you the scenes that you are not expecting. You know, and, and the research that I think is behind this film. I mean, people talk about like this, the notebooks and notebooks and notebooks that like, you know, Ari put together to try to like come up with this script. And we should say, by the way, this is like a different project for him than Hereditary was. You know, like Hereditary was... His story, his idea, like his, his thing that he created from, you know, the ground up from just himself, uh, came because like, you know, some Scandinavian producers were like, will you make a movie that's like hostile, but in Scandinavia? And if you do that, we'll give you money. And this was before, you know, Hereditary came out. So he was like, okay, I will write a script to take your money. In essence. And then he started thinking about what kind of movie he wanted to make, and he started thinking, like, okay, I have this idea. Like, I will take this hostile tourism movie, and I'll add what I'm interested in, which is, like, he was going through a breakup. So this is him talking about that.
0: I just wanted to write a breakup movie.
2: And I saw a way of marrying the breakup movie that I had at the time with the structure of a folk horror film.
0: I think if there is any legacy for the film, I would love for it to be a movie that people go to when they're going through a breakup. I hope this qualifies as a contribution to like to that
2: tradition.
1: I mean, in a way, this is like my favorite type of creativity, where it's like, we give you a prompt, and then you have to make it your
2: own. I love that. I'd rather that than anything else. It helps me, like... Focus. It helps me think about it. But you know, I was thinking about it. It helps you think
1: about what you do and don't want to do. You're like, okay, if that's the prompt, how would other people do it? And how will I make mine different?
2: And I think that what I'm putting together here is... And I know earlier I said, I think it's a, a simple reading to say it's just about a toxic relationship. But I think ultimately most breakups, whether or not it's stated... Yes, there's cheating and all that sort of stuff, but I think all those things are coming out of this idea that you have a lack, you're lacking rhythm with the other person. You no longer are growing together. You no longer are in community with each other, right? And I think that that yeah, is. It's almost
1: like we have all these phrases to capture. You're not in step, you know, you're not right. in sync. It's like, where does it kind of get to the same
2: meaning? And I think that to have the main character not in step, In her relationship, but then also not in step with the world, because grief is, I think, the largest breakup you can experience in the sense that you have lost somebody that means so much to you that you forever feel like you feel out of step with the world. You know, you truly do feel. And so it's interesting that she's going through both of these things and. It's accepting I don't have to make this right. Like she kills her boyfriend. I don't think that she kills her boyfriend because he forgets her birthday. I think that she kills her boyfriend because she is freeing herself from that life. And she's saying, no, this is where I belong. If she was to free her boyfriend, she'd be continuing the cycle. You know, and I think that that's what's so interesting. I think it's very hard to feel like I'm not here, I'm not in it, I'm not committed to this, but it's so hard to do. And she makes the hardest choice, which is to kill this person. He wouldn't survive there, you know, otherwise. But I think that she, I, I, I it's very interesting how she does it because I, th- I don't see it as revenge. I see it as something triumphant. I see it as something like she is finally letting go, making the hardest choice possible for the best version of her life, which is to be surrounded by a community. And yes, they're a pagan community that has some pretty messed up rituals, but they are a community that is there for her more than anybody else that she's experienced so far.
1: Well, they're a pagan community that's, burning a guy named christian so there right well right he's he's, isn't he writing
2: about like uh he's writing a a, uh you know uh, about a ritual like so yeah he's a a christian christian killed by a pagan
1: yeah i mean the guys are all like kind of getting the guys all basically know what's coming before they know what's coming you know like i mean uh will poulter is like we're gonna go there and we're gonna like bang all these women and it's like by the way will poulter
2: is great in this movie he's Um, so great in
1: this movie he's absolutely the the dipshittiest of all his dipshit friends. So funny. But like, but like, but to your point, it's like she's offered this kind of game show choice, right? Like there's she's given the choice of like, you're gonna kill one of the horga or you're gonna kill an outsider. They do it kind of, I feel like in a nod to like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, you know, that famous book about like a, you know, the famous short story about like a community that goes through a killing ritual every year. There's like that game show element where they like have the lottery and they're like, please step forward. Right. Tulbjorn. Honorable Tulbjorn, please step forward. But so yeah, it's like, is she going to kill this person she doesn't know, but he's part of this community that's now accepted her or is she going to kill her ex who she does know? That's one way of looking at it. You know, she has to choose between them or it's like, is she going to choose her family because they are her family now? Or this outsider? it And is she going to choose like having a new family or
2: this like outsider? It- well, what we think is right isn't always right, right? Like I think that we do this to ourselves a lot. Well, I need to be doing this. I need to be with this person. This makes sense on paper, right? Like that's, a I think, an, an issue. Or I'm looking at somebody else and going, I should be there. And not looking at what is actually fulfilling you, supporting you. And this is an extreme example of that, obviously. But I think that it does call attention to this thing. Like, why are we chasing these decisions, these motivations that I'm doing because it's, that's what I think people want me to do versus what I really, like where I really feel fulfilled. I mean, don't you think that people wrestle with that? Like, oh, well, I should be doing that. I'm not doing that. And they, and you give up on yourself in a way. Like I, I've really always wanted to be a dancer, but I will continue to work at this job that I'm kind of quietly quitting at. And I'm not really excited to be here, but I'm doing it because I want, you know, I know I have to, I need, I need, I need to make money. I can't risk doing this. And I, and I'm, I'm committing to this. Like it's a, it's a decision I think we always wrestle with.
1: Yeah, totally. And what I, think as like another layer of complication to that is that we get to see that even this community doesn't have all the correct information about their decisions, you know, because like two other Horga have like volunteered to be like burned alive in the yellow shack, the yellow, you know, triangle alongside Christian and, you know, they volunteered to do it. The three of them are going to be the three people in there who are alive while the thing is set on fire. The locals are given, like, this yew tree sap, you know, and they're told it's going to make them not feel pain. They're not going to feel fear. They do not give any of this to Christian, but they give it to, like, the two locals. And yet, what we see when we're inside is Ari makes a point of showing that they still feel pain, that they've been kind of misled about the yew tree sap, and they are still screaming in pain. And it, maybe it's not a lie. Maybe it's not misleading, Maybe it's just nobody who's taken the yew tree sap and then been burned alive lived to tell people, no, you actually do feel the pain. But they are still screaming. And so, like, even their ritual doesn't completely play out the way that they've been told it will. And right, that's but they don't know also, it. They don't know it. Yeah, the, the, the people the horga will maybe never know that that doesn't totally work. But these members of the horga will die in pain. And that's also really brutal.
2: Right for doing everything right
1: for doing Either. everything right. And, and, and a lot of the, the pain that we see here comes from Norse mythology. Like Aster doesn't make a lot of stuff up in this. you know like when you see like say, like the guy, um, when you get that really quick image of, I think it's like Simon in the chicken coop, where he they have like taken his lungs out and he's like hanging from the ceiling. Do you know what I mean? What yeah. I'm talking about? That is actually a Norse torture that they talk about in old books. It's called "The Blood Eagle." Uh, Like, there's a reference to it in one of the Norse sagas uh, where they describe it, kind of like, here's their sentence. As a backdrop, they've, like, captured the son of one of their animes. Quote, Einar made them carve an eagle on his back with a sword and cut the ribs all from the backbone and draw the lungs there out and gave him to Odin for the victory he had won. So that torture, not made up. Unless it's, you know, a fictional torture. Maybe that, I mean, that book is not, you know a documentary that book is like people inventing things. And I'm sure that like Stephen King has not done most of the murders that he did. And they're just in fiction and maybe like a thousand years from now we'll be like, Oh man, it, they really did have these killer clowns really crazy. But like that torture is very specifically described and then like recreated here. And also even the cliff jump, you know, the Atsupa, like this is an idea that shows up all the way back in like the five hundreds, you know, there's this, um, Greek book the kind of like this ancient Greek book that talks about this people way up north and it says that man these weirdos who live all the way up there they're so happy they live so long they can't even die normal deaths because they're so happy and they live so long so what they have to do is they have to throw themselves off a cliff you know and so they come up with the story and they call it like artsopa and definitely not true. It's like part of just like a myth in this book, but it gets sort of adopted as this idea by the society. And the Vikings themselves kind of turn it into this dark joke. They start making these jokes like, you know, about families who are so cheap, they start throwing themselves off of cliffs so that they don't have to spend their money, like hosting people and buying them beers. So it kind of has almost certainly, they're pretty sure never happened according to anthropologists. But it is an idea that has been described as being something that happens in this community for like 1500 years. You know, and they refer to like, you know, they refer to stuff kind of in shorthand, like, oh, this is just like an atsupa. It, this idea hasn't gone away. So it's real well, and yeah. not real. Yeah.
2: You were talking about this idea that like, you know, he did all this research. You know, it reminded me very much like a Wes Anderson movie as well, because, you know, he created a language and these symbols and, you know, the the um the outfits are, you know, the symbols are on the outfits, they're hand-dyed. This entire thing is so meticulous. It's so down to the it it has all those um those flourishes of like what we know of Wes Anderson, you know, to this greater good. Like um, and I thought that was really beautiful how this culture just seems incredibly seamless. It, it doesn't seem like any expense was spared everywhere that you look. If you pause the frame, you'd be able to zoom in and be like, oh yeah, that's that. And that's this. And uh, I just love that attention to detail. And I also love the idea of, this transition, you know, from these dark, pretty much all the Americans come in dark clothing and they're all wearing white. Everyone's wearing white. It's beautiful out. It's light out. It's a time of birth and, and you know, this rebirth in this entire world. Like, so this idea of like transforming out of black and into white. And I think it goes the same for uh, for Christian who, you know, he goes into white and then rejects white, although I don't think it was ever really given to him as an opportunity to stay, but he rejects the white and then is naked, right? I think there's something about that too. Like he won't he won't fit in that world, you know, where she puts on that white. And from the moment she puts on the white and the headdress, everything starts to, she's committed into the world. She's in the world and she's a part of it. And they take her in as one uh, instead of fighting against it. Like i I, I thought it was so interesting and kind of insulting to see these these characters like these ugly Americans like you walking around Sweden not being a part <laughs> of not being a part of the the they always stuck out right they didn't like if i was to go to that i think my first instinct would be like can i get one of these white outfits because i don't want to be i don't want to be like a tourist in this idea but they don't even Ask for that. They just want to be like, can we take, can we do a study on this? Can we do drugs around you? Can we, like, they just want all the fun of it, but they're not participating in it. Just another level of that, too. I mean, it's just a level of selfishness.
1: Yeah, they're holding themselves as tourists, like, specifically, not as like members. And, and I mean, it probably even makes that joke about it that I love. You know, they're like, uh, I think it's Christian sees the redheaded girl and he's like, oh, can we dance if we want to dance? And he's like, well, you're an American. Just jam yourself in there yeah <laughs> which I mean I think this film in a way is n- both about this kind of like heightened made up Swedish culture, but it's also I think very reflective of American culture like I think it shows American culture through the contrast of the Swedish people, yeah, you know, kind of like how I felt when I was there, like, okay, I see how different like our our country and our like way of thinking is based on what you're showing around it. It, which is, it's strange. You know, I think we have a lot of films that, you know, like, oh yeah, we're Wolf of Wall Street. It's about American culture, blah, 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 blah. But this is like something different. This is just about kind of tenants in us that we take for granted. That is how we imagine is how life plays out. That isn't necessarily true at all. The subtle stuff, not just like though we're going to be Wall Street traders and conquer the world, but like Oh, yeah, this country is sort of based on, like, independence and fun and taking what you want and not expecting to have to, like, contribute to the community necessarily. Like, that is part of our identity. I think this film is very much about that while ostensibly being about another way of life. And even, like, you know, we were talking, like, in a wrap-up episode about finding new ways of telling stories. And, you know, that idea of, like, what comes after the hero's journey? What else – what other ways of telling stories are there that we haven't thought of? Because we're just so steeped in ours. And I admire that every time we see these murals, you know, that kind of describe what stories are going to happen. Like, I'm thinking of the one um, where it's, like, the panel of, like, the girl falling in love, making the pubic hair potion, putting the blood in the cup, a thing that we never see her do. We just notice that Christian's cup is slightly redder than everybody else. Right. It's like, oh, no. But the way that story is told through art, it doesn't even go the, the quote unquote Western, normal Western way that we're used to, which is like left to right. It goes right to left. And it's just sort of saying, this is its own story. It's not even going to be told in the framework that you're used to. It's going to be told in the opposite direction. And that is the direction that is right here. It's like, I feel like even the order of those panels says that this is about getting inside the head of a new way of seeing the world.
2: Yeah, and maybe this, is a, maybe this movie is about this moment when you leave college, when school is over and you enter into the world, right? Like this idea of like, you now have control of your own destiny and you, and what life do you want to live? And is it a world in which you can, you know, fully breathe in or are you always going to be tight, you know? And I think that like, I keep on going back to the idea of breath too. Like that idea of breath is always about like being in the moment, centering yourself seeing what's around you and i think that we all can be so tight uh you know about what we want and how we want to be that you know we don't allow ourselves to breathe even though the breathing is a little bit odd i don't know if i have a full full theory on it but i do believe that like that idea of like centering your breath looking forward and and who you want to be is something that you know on many levels this movie works you know life death it's it's everything it's it's about literal death it's about the death of relationships, it's about the death of adolescence, it's about the rebirth of a new person and a, you know, a a coming out party for a society that, you know, they are so committed to the world that they made that they will die for it. I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful, there's so many beautiful ideas in here, you know, are you willing to to be all in. Can you be all in for everything? And these people definitely are all in for their society in that, whether that's burning alive, uh, taking people there, uh, you know, whatever it is, they are, they are all there for each other. And I think mainly we don't really live like that or not all the time.
1: It's true. And actually kind of that cycle you're talking about, it's really here in one of the casting choices, which is, you know, very subtle. Uh, Very, very clear if you're like a a movie nerd like Ari is. Um, But it's the casting of the old guy who jumps off the cliff, Bjorn Anderson, which is that I wanted to come back to in a second. Um, Bjorn Anderson, you know, this face, this like long haired gray face is like engraved in our memories, I think, of anybody who's seen this movie. But his face is actually very, very famous to a different generation for um, this film from 1971 called Death in Venice, uh, it's a Visconti film. It played Cannes. It was like a huge deal in 1971. And Bjorn Anderson, this famous old guy in that movie, is was young. He was a teenager, and he played this like young blonde boy who's like walking through this movie, and he's this like object of obsession from this older man who's like obsessed with this young handsome blonde boy. He never really talks to him, but the director Visconti, you know, casts Bjorn Anderson. He's a kid. He's like 15 when he's like cast into this movie. And he calls him and all of the press uh build up to it, the most beautiful boy in the world. And this becomes basically Bjorn Anderson's name. It's like shorthand for him. Uh, he made a documentary about his life and how hard it was called the most beautiful boy in the world. He's put on, there's a, a there's a book, uh, I think Jermaine Greer wrote it, I forget. It's called The Beautiful Boy, and she used his picture and put it on top of that book. And he didn't even know about it. He was kind of mad. But, like, that's this guy. Like, he had just, like, this androgynous, boyish, high-cheekboned, sad-eyed beauty that has been so influential, even to people who haven't seen this movie, like— His face actually in the 70s wound up becoming such this like pop icon face that he was a huge influence on anime artists all the way in Japan. Like he was like a huge sensation in Japan because they loved his face so much. And so when they started drawing boys, they started drawing more boys in anime cartoons to look like him. So, you know, that kind of anime guy face that's like young and handsome and androgynous and boyish. That's his face, honestly. Like he kind of inspired that face. So to take this... Actor who's known for being this beautiful boy, and then cast him as this symbol of age, you know, of 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 having to pass out of this community. Like I feel like to Ari, that's like his in joke, you know, like, oh, it's Bjorn Anderson. How perfect is that? And it really is perfect. Like he was shooting that documentary about how awful his life was when he became like known as the most beautiful boy in the world while he was um Making Midsummer, so if you watch that documentary, you actually get to see some really neat behind-the-scenes footage of him shooting scenes in, in Midsummer, like the the cliff jump. You get to see it from his point of view, shot in like this really beautiful, poetic way. And um, yeah, I just want to give a little shout out
2: to Be Well, Horn. I do want to talk about that scene that that uh, jumping off the cliff theme because I also thought, and I've, I've read some stuff online, that the woman who jumps off was cast because of her similarity and look. To Danny, Florence Pugh's character. Oh, wow. And so, like, she sees herself in Florence's face, and she's like, I'm killing myself to make room for you. Like, another little bit of foreshadowing.
0: Whoa.
2: Yeah, so I thought that was actually really interesting, too. I mean, again, it's, I don't think that has confirmed that, uh, but it's been uh, really discussed a lot online.
1: Uh, I like that. I mean, that is... It wouldn't shock me. Who knows? I mean, like, yeah. Ari is known for being such, like, a specific filmmaker. Like, the, William Jackson Harper would talk about it. Like, he, you know, he does this movie in so many, like, really long, wide shots. where you are watching things kind of in and out of the frame. Things are in the back of the frame. Kind of the camera just sort of moving this way, moving that way. Yeah. Huge shots that take so much coordination. And yeah, he was very specific. Like, I was like, we would do them over and over and over and over again until we got it exactly right. Some of the stories from, like, filming this movie sound really awful. There's, like, spiders everywhere, bugs everywhere. They're sitting at these long tables, you know, with food in front of them, doing these scenes over and over and over again. They're talking about how, like, the shrimp on their plates all would start rotting. And so they'd be trying to breathe and act, and there'd just be the smell of rotting shrimp everywhere. That There's, like, wasps. All over the place. Yeah. I don't know if they edited them out. You don't really see them on camera, but they were like all of our glasses of juice that they have in front of them. Yeah. Which I guess is just like dyed sugar water. There's just like wasps in them. (laughs) Like people were puking at the tables and then like sitting back down.
2: Oh, it looks so upsetting. It really does. Uh, Oh, Like there's something also really interesting too with the way that the camera captures psychedelics, right? Because um, I like... The subtlety of it. I think it's so hard to capture, like, what does it feel like to be high in a movie? Oh, yeah. You know, and I, I always think,
1: freak out when there's a drug scene because I feel like they're usually so bad. And I was
2: like, yeah, Ugh, why a,
1: does Dan Keaton have to get high in this? I don't care.
2: Well, and I think watching someone have these like little moments in their peripheral vision. Like, you see a house kind of, like, breathe or in or out, or you see trees kind of move in or out. By the way, there's a great thing online that someone has shown. There's a shape of the trees uh, in one sequence uh, that mirrors the shape of the sister putting the pipe in her mouth. And they lay it over each other. It's very much like The Shining documentary, but I'll take it. Um, But (laughs) this idea that, um, you know, you're seeing these subtle things. Like, the table just, like slightly blurry they're like you're like there are these subtle ways that the movie makes you uneasy throughout yes they don't subtitle a lot of the swedish some of it they do not all of it they don't you know they don't show you like what it feels like to be on a drug trip but they also create things in your foreground that you are constantly questioning i do think that like those little flutters of images, those, you know, like when she's sitting at the head of the table and you're kind of, the camera's over the food like you're discussing. I'm like, what is that? What am I looking at? Like, you're not seeing things head on. It's a constant fucking with your perspective. And I think that that is actually some of the most unnerving stuff. And that's, you know, the idea of like, when she looks at her feet and she sees it covered in grass or she looks at her hands and she sees it covered, you know, uh, she's clearly, it feels like, She's high from the maypole scene all the way to the burning, right?
1: It feels like they are high a lot. Who even knows what's in their glasses of, I mean, I'm sure that tea gets them high with the yellow petals, but like, is anything that you're drinking there safe?
2: Yeah. I mean, you don't know. And I feel like, because when she is completely covered in those flowers, like she's coming, you know, like, I guess like that kind of flower is like a rebirth. Like she's literally rising out of the ground. She's, you know, birthing, you know, she's, she is, she has shed her dark clothes. She is, you know, she is coming up. It's like, that's what you, that's when you know that the summer, the spring is happening. Like she is in bloom. And, but she also looks just like Christian where she's there, but not there. In a way too, but then that smile at the end, like she is, she's released herself. She's fully here now. She's here in this world. And I don't fear for her. I don't feel for, I don't, I don't feel like, oh, they got, they got her, you know, like the end of a horror movie. It, it feels, I think it feels triumphant. What do you think about that ending?
1: Well, yeah. Like Ari has said that this movie is a horror movie. If you're one of the guys. Mm -hmm. Those guys are living in a horror movie. They go to this community. They think they're doing one thing. They all, through mistakes they make and also just rituals they don't understand, wind up dead. But for her, her point of view, if you're really just watching her, it's kind of a fairy tale. You know, she's been miserable. She goes to this new place. And suddenly she's with people who not just understand her, but like accept and embrace her. And all the pain that she's known winds up leaving. So it's a happy ending for her. She kind of... It's not like she gets everything she wants. You know, her family is still dead, but in a way...
2: Well, family is always going to be dead, right? Yeah.
1: Right. But she, she has this new family. She has this... In the old world, she had a sister who took everything away from her. You know, and I feel like the idea that it was a sister is really key. You know, it's not like a car accident. It's like a sister who did this, a sister. And what she finds here at the end of the film is... All of these new sisters, sisters who aren't going to hurt her that way and aren't going to take the people that she loves away from her. You know, I mean, she even calls like the actors that she is performing within that scene where she's having their, that meltdown a true sisterhood. She wrote this really beautiful Instagram post about it. You know that these women made that scene possible. That they were like holding each other and crying, and it was really hard, and they couldn't stop crying. And and I love the way that pulls out. like even just the audio of that meltdown that she has with them. You hear it go from like her being sad in her in her own rhythm to them forming that rhythm around her to giving her this like this community. (laughs) So it's kind of like she loses a sister and gains a hundred sisters. Well, she
2: gains that she she loses her family and gets a family back. It's like more than a sister because I feel like the whole community. It's like she gets community, which is the one thing that she had. She even her connection to community with her parents seems frayed in the beginning, right? So she gets a fully functional thing, and I guess my argument is. Is this a subversive fairy tale? Because when you hear about, you know, Goldilocks and the three bears or, you know, Hansel and Gretel, oftentimes these characters go into the woods. They meet somebody that's different than them. And then they run away and then they kill that person, They burn down the house. They, you know, I don't know if they kill the bears and three bears, but like they they basically like use up everything and then get the fuck out here. It's the same idea. They go there. Wait, did you just
1: ask if Goldilocks kills the three bears?
2: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> right is that how it ends does it yeah, end like that
1: i don't think she kills them don't they just chase her out wait they don't kill her right No,
2: i don't know i thought them. that you go back and kill them anyway ooh, but oh all, oh right yeah right that, oh yeah, yeah, she'd yeah.
1: run away and then come back and kill the bear yeah
2: like oh that house they tried to why do something why would you do to?
1: that to a bear it's just it's a bear
2: so we're just gonna ignore the bear then. it's a bear i mean look there is a bear. it is a bear uh but i'll say that like it's the opposite of every fairy tale that we've ever heard which is like you go there You're penalized for taking everything, but then you actually ingratiate yourself. Like we are so taught in our fairy tales, like different is worse, right? Different is not right. Like, what are these people doing? Like, oh, that looks weird. It looks weird. We're not, we're not up for this. And this is one where she stays in the weird world. It's not that weird. She actually understands it. Like maybe, you know, maybe the witch in the woods isn't that bad. You know, maybe the bears aren't that bad, but, you know, our, our culture, a lot of our culture is about these stories, not even our culture, you know, a lot of culture is about going, you know, these fairy tales about going into a, a scary place and finding your way out of that scary place and being like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be home, but maybe home isn't where you always need to be.
1: You're right. In a way that the way you're describing it makes it sound like propaganda. This fairy tale is saying, don't go there. Those people are bad. And if you do, you should probably go back and kill them. Yeah. And what if that story is wrong? What if the new way of telling a story is what makes more sense?
2: Right. Or what What if we are not listening enough to anyone and we're not really looking and seeing what we, like instead of just taking from it, like these people had nothing, they didn't want to be a part of this. They wanted to just be observers and take and steal and use their culture for to forward their own objectives, not be a part of it. You know, whereas I think, you know, when you watch, uh, Danny go through, she's actively asking questions, w- learning, watching, you know, not, she's not there for any reason besides, she has no purpose in being there besides being tagged along. And I think in a weird way that it, it makes her want to lean in a little bit. She is asking the right questions. So she basically tells her boyfriend, like, I think someone's killed or missing, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so what goes on here about incest? Like, it's like, you know, and you see that in her face. And she's like, what, what, what's happening here? Like, yeah, you know. And, I, and
1: actually, yeah, like even how she's trying to explain it to him, she, you don't understand. This boyfriend wouldn't have left his girlfriend here, right? Like, she knows it's wrong because of this emotional level being wrong, and he doesn't recognize it's wrong because he doesn't get the emotions.
2: Well, because he's not even, but he doesn't care because it doesn't, it doesn't affect doesn't him. Care. It doesn't affect. But yeah, him. it's like.
1: He, he doesn't see it even the way she does because he doesn't know what that bond is supposed to feel like. Right. And and actually, you know, I was going to ask you, like, what's Pele's role in this? Because Pele seems to be like the only friend who kind of likes her of his group. And he's like, I want you to come. I feel like you you know, should go be there. I wanted you to come more than anybody else. He almost talks her into it when there's a chance that maybe she wasn't going to go after all. By the way, that cut from like her running into the bathroom to them being the airplane at the bathroom, amazing. But Pele, you know, he makes her the birthday present of the illustration. He gives her the kiss. Part of me was watching this being like, oh, is this like Pele's thing? Like, is he going to start dating her at the end of this? But just as I was about to phrase that question and ask you that, I don't know if there's any couples in this community. You don't see any couples walking around like, necessarily hand in hand, like a unit, you know, the people that we see are pretty much individuals of the community. You know, they stand equally spaced from each other at the ceremonies. It doesn't, you don't really feel families. And we know that they don't have families necessarily traditional way from like the redheaded girl. So what if this is a fantasy world where there aren't even couples, where they're like, couple is a bad way of structuring anything. Well, yeah. There shouldn't be
2: couples. Right. It's sort of like, I agree with that. Uh, And it seems like that part of that is like they bring in these people to forward, like certain people get entered in so they can keep a clean line, a clean bloodline. I think what's really interesting about Pele is that he is looking at her and he's feeling that she is someone that can benefit from community. She is someone that isn't as jaded as these other friends, that isn't that selfish but could use, you know, it's like what you were saying about your Swedish friends, like that they were like, well, I don't need to make American friends because I I have my Swedish friends. Like this idea that like, I think he sees in her like, I want to bring you here. I want you to feel a part of this. When he shows her the pictures of the other women there and, and is like bringing her to it. I think, look, if she became selfish, I think she would die. Like, I don't think that like he feels that there's any more there, but I think he does part of his, I think the reason why he succeeded is because he did find the proper May Queen, the person who could come from the outside world that could continue the bloodline, that could be a part of this community. Like he did his job perfectly, um, with that in my mind. So I I like I I see him as a really astute member of, you know, of of uh, as an astute member of of the society. Like that, he's actually able to see somebody for what they are.
1: Aww, so. <laughs> Yay, yay for Pele?
2: <laughs> you know, so <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, look.
1: What, what can yeah. you do? It's funny. I feel like the first time I watched this film, I was like, man, Pele brought his, like, dude friends over to get them killed? But I don't know I if I he's... see it that way anymore. I think he's just like, oh, man, they fucked up. Oh, well. I well, can't. I, look, will, I won't take their side against my community.
2: Look, I think it was like, we're going to bring some people here and we'll let them... They could all be good. Like, I mean, they clearly took something from Christian. Uh, you know, Um <laughs> And that's That's that That's true
1: Yeah If Will hadn't peed on that tree Well I think Will would have been Yeah (laughs) I love by the way How he gets lured away I mean Will Poulter makes such like An impression in this movie And then He gets kind of Seduced away from the table By the By the other um, Horga girl And like I love this conversation Because I just find it so Absurd You'll come with me? What?
0: You'll come? Uh, I'll show you.
2: Okay. Sure. Yeah? Yeah. Great. Um.
1: It was just like, I'll show you. And he's not like, show you what? <laughs> you know, he's right. like She's going to show me. The ease in which he is yanked away from the group is so funny. It, I just, I love that dialogue. I think that dialogue is great. It's like, there's no f- coming up with, I'm going to show you the secret tree that you can pee on or anything like that. It's just like, I'll just show you the vagueness. Wonderful. I heard, by the way, and I don't know if this is true, that if you watch the director's cut, there's these other conversations that you overhear where like, they're talking about a man whose penis gets bitten off. And they're talking about a woman who has three uh, clitorises. I don't know if that's true. I haven't <laughs> seen the extended cut. I, I do think
2: the this minutes. is a movie that really pays on the rewatch. And like I said, I was kind of spinning through the director's cut as I was, um, you know, just trying to soak it all in because it is a long, it's about two hours and 15 minutes, um, five zero. Uh, but looking through it, I'm like, oh, wow. They really, really, there's so much here. And and it's so much more fulfilling to see that that picture of like, oh, what's, you know, when they see that, that image like hang on the clothesline, like, oh, that's a little romance story. And then that's exactly what happens. But again, it's too much to take in on that first time. This is a movie that really pays off on multiple views. Um, I really like it because of that.
1: Very much. And, you know, the, I guess as we're wrapping up, I do want to say on multiple views, I have really come to think that not only is this a brilliant Florence Pugh performance, this is like a brilliant Jack Rayner performance. Mm. I mean, he is amazing as Christian. I really think so. Like, this is a guy who I think convincingly makes himself look like an ordinary pretty hot dope who women might like, but is pretty stupid. Like, honestly, like he's just the way he smiles, you know that like I don't know what the name of this meme is. It's the, it's the kind of Irish setter looking dog. And when he smiles, his lips tuck in. And to me, he kind of looks like Vladimir Putin. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. He has that smile. He just like does that smile. And I think it's so funny on him. He, he holds his face, I think, as though he's Will Ferrell trying to do an impersonation of George Bush on Saturday Night Live. Huh. But, but he, I feel like I know that guy. Do you know what I mean? I feel like yes. I've met well, that I, guy. That, I, he is like real. He's not mustache twiddling. He is an ordinary fuck up. And the way he walks, the way he moves, the way he reacts to things, he's doing a lot of work here in playing a dope. And I just think he's marvelous. You know, and I think
2: what I'm realizing about that performance and why you and I think side with him to a certain extent is... I think he's a guy that doesn't know what he wants and it's 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 you know it's clearly shown to us he doesn't know what he wants because he hasn't figured out what his thesis is. You know, he doesn't it's not like he's just in an unhappy relationship. He doesn't know how to pull the trigger, what he should be doing. He has no he is rudderless. And because of his rudderlessness, he is kind of moving over here, moving over there. And like, he is so easily malleable to whatever is the, like the instinct and um, like the way that they drag him into that thing. He, he's not fighting against, he's, there's no backbone to him. And that's what I think kind of makes him less of a toxic boyfriend and more of just like, he's more lost than she is. He just doesn't know it.
1: Yeah, I mean, being rudderless is not a crime. If it is, we'd all be Cry, you know, criminals. Like we've all had moments like that. He's just sort of a pathetic weasel, and that's not a villain. It it I think that actually makes it scary to me, scary. They I I can relate to Christian. I totally relate to Christian also, you know. We've all felt out of our depths and trying to just, like, say the right things to other people and kind of being mealy-mouthed and being like, oh, yeah, I, ba- I barely I barely, know Josh. I don't know. I don't know where he went. I don't know. Like, denying people. Like, he's just weak. And weak is so different from evil. We can do a lot of harm, though. We can be so harmful. And I think it's good to kind of nail weakness to the wall and be like, right. weakness in its way is so destructive but it's also understandable. I mean, I guess that's sort of what this whole movie is about: rituals that are destructive but understandable to these people. Like it, there's nobody is painted in like a, a black and white brush here.
2: Yes, I think that that's totally true, and I think that that's the truth for any relationship. Like a relationship, even if someone cheats on you, it's not because it. It's like it's because they don't know how to get out of it. I think in a way. Yeah,
1: it's a a way of dropping a bomb. Yeah. Like now that I am older, I am not mad at that college boyfriend. I feel like, whew, I'm glad like, in a way it was like, okay, make it all bad at once and that'll be easier to get over with. Right. You know, don't drag out I can't say this, but I can just,
2: yeah, yeah, I can fuck you over and and make it.
1: Yeah. And I don't know. I guess I feel like I also learned from that, that there's a way of grieving where sometimes you just like having something easier to be annoyed by. Right. So it's like maybe Florence's character is, you know, trying to deal with her family's loss. That's hard, but in a way she's like inspired to stay in that relationship because stressing out about whether or not Christian is happy and whether or not they're working out is almost more tangible than dealing with her parents being lost. So there's yeah. some sort of weird benefit to having something a present ordinary small misery that focuses your attention when you can't deal on the bigger one. Totally agree. Who? anyway, hello. <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, yeah, no, and I think that that's why this movie is utterly rewatchable. But it's also a movie that I found myself so connected to right away. And it's visually compelling. I think it's emotionally compelling. And, you know, you, you talk about a movie that isn't really living in close-ups. And it's living in these very static shots where you're just actually watching people perform and i think in a weird way the lack of movement in the camera the amount of extras in the background always in tandem always doing something is creating this you are in this world it, it, like the background the community is always alive in every scene and that is truly uh like a an, such a beautifully artful way of telling the story it's like the community is around you. Do you want to embrace the community or want to get away from the community? And there's so much just straight acting where you're not having to look at faces, but you're seeing people in, in physical space, not connected or connecting.
1: Well, do you want to hear a negative movie review from somebody who did oh my not gosh, connect sure, to this of at course. all? Yes, it is Bum 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 Rex Reed from the Observer, Makes sense. and this is what he wrote in his pan of Midsummer. He called it ahem. Grim, grizzly, and downright sickening, Midsummer is a feel-bad horror film about suicide, mercy killings, insanity, graphic nudity, religious hysteria, and the kind of grotesque imagery that exists for no other reason than shock value. Director Ari Aster's delusional fantasy films contain enough imagination for today's pretentious critics to label him a quote-unquote visionary, but not enough substance or ideas for the real world to regard him as an artist of true and lasting value. This film seems endless with all of the horror restricted to beginning and end sequences with interminable wide angle lenses capturing the moment by moment eccentricities of the cult in a pointless series of mood changers that explain all but the most basic necessities. Who are the parents of the endless children raised by all cult members together? What is their purpose? Where do they go in the winter? The food is strange, the midnight sun never sets, the elderly indulge in rounds of eerie, slow, ritualistic yodeling that sounds like the EIEIO in Old MacDonald had a farm. The result is a sick, sophomoric, and paralyzingly overwrought overlong send up of the woman's movement that will either insult, enrage, or thrill female audiences. Huh. <laughs> a send up of the woman's movement. That is Rex a Reed. Never stop being Rex Reed.
2: I love it. I mean, there's nothing to say, uh, but yeah, hilarious. <laughs>
1: hilarious. Well done, sir. Well done. May the may the bears treat you kindly. <laughs> <laughs> well then, Paul, you have finally braved a movie that you were scared to watch, and I was kind of thinking for next week, I would bring out a movie that. I only recently watched last year because I was terrified to see it. And it did put me in a completely creepy and destructive mood. And now it has a a sequel reboot. I don't even know, but it is Hellraiser. Have you seen Hellraiser? I
2: have not seen Hellraiser.
1: (gasps) Oh boy, Paul, this might be the movie you have been dreading.
2: Okay, well, I'm ready to go. Let's, Let's bring it on.
1: All right. We're really going to... I don't know if we've done a movie as hardcore as Hellraiser. Have we? Oh, man.
2: Well, I'm here for it. I'm I'm emboldened by my first foray back into the horror genre. And let's take a listen to the trailer for Hellraiser. (laughs) Hellraiser. Beyond any terror you have imagined... (gasps)
0: unlike anything you have witnessed is born because within these walls the unholy is unleashed
2: Five, Parker,
0: will tear your soul apart.
2: Ooh. All right, here we go. I I have uh, some connection to this character a little bit. I know that there's a female pinhead right now. That's big news. Uh, But uh, I'm excited to go back to the the classic original. You can get this wherever you get your streaming films. Um, uh, But next week we will open up the gift that the Hellraiser brings.